0: Hello, listeners. Before we get started, we want to thank our new sponsor, AnswerOne, for its support of this show. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal
1: Legal Rebels podcast where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
0: Hello, I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer at the ABA Journal. Today, I have with me Ken Adams. He's a consultant, writer, and speaker on contract drafting. He's the author of A Manual of Style for Contract Drafting and has recently teamed up with the contract review technology company Legal Sifter. Ken Adams, thank you for being with us.
2: It's a pleasure to be speaking with you.
0: Now, I wanted to start off our conversation by taking a look backwards. Today, you're being called the guru of contract drafting by uh, at least one website that I saw, but I can't imagine that was your original plan when you were applying for law school. So before finding your stride in the space, I'm curious, what type of aspiring law student and lawyer were you?
2: Well, I'm afraid I was an example of that classic specimen, the liberal arts wastrel who goes to law school because they don't have any better ideas. And uh, it's not as if I somehow immediately found my calling. Uh, I found I wasn't really suited to transactional work. It was too hectic, too stressful, and uh, expediency-driven. So I feel very fortunate that I happened into what I'm doing now. It's a related field, but it's a very different kind of work, calling on very different skills.
0: So what was that liberal arts degree that you had?
2: Well, I went to college in England, and I studied medieval archaeology for three years and racketed around the English countryside. So it was a fascinating subject, and I remain interested in it, but it didn't require too much uh, thought to realize that I wasn't going to make that my career. So I gravitated to law school um, because it it didn't require a whole lot of stretch to think of that because my two brothers had gone to law school. So uh, There I was, and I moved from England to the U.S. for law school. So
0: it doesn't sound like you enjoyed practice very much. I'm curious, what ultimately pushed you out of private legal practice?
2: Well, it's really that um, just my mind is suited to a different kind of work. So In the late 1990s, I decided on a whim to start taking a closer look at contract language, what works and what doesn't work. And I started spending more and more of my time on that. And in 2006, I got my first consulting gig, and that's what allowed me to quit my final law firm job. Uh, It's been something of an adventure. I had to first create a new field. The rigorous study of the building blocks of contract language, then convince people to pay me for my expertise.
0: So when you say you started looking at what works and what doesn't work in contracts, what exactly are we talking about? What standards are you using to make that assessment?
2: Well, given the limited and stylized nature of contract language, and given that a lot is at stake in contracts, it's a bit of a hybrid analysis. You look at the way language works, for one thing, because when you're trying to convey meaning, it always has to be rooted in a reasonable sense of how the English language works. But at the same time, it is indeed a limited and stylized kind of writing. So it's kind of analogous to software code. You can't just approach it with a kind of enthusiasm and a copy of plain English for lawyers saying, hey, I can write clearly, I can do this. There are a lot of pitfalls if you just kind of blithely start trying to write clearly and think that that's the extent of it. It's a very technical sort of subject.
0: So was this interest in clear and concise writing something that evolved over time? You know, were you writing compelling essays on old English architecture and archaeology back in your undergrad days? At what point did this begin to seep into your psyche?
2: <laughs> Makes it sound like a uh, Uh, something I should see a therapist (laughs) about. But uh, I've always been a writerly sort. At the same time, I'm very practical. I'm also kind of driven, um, if you give me the right sort of topic. So it turned out that contract drafting, the, the building blocks of contract language more specifically, was something of a perfect combination. For one thing, It had novelty going for it. Before I came along, no one had really studied the building blocks of contract language in anything like the detail that the the topic required. So I've had the field largely to myself. By comparison, people have long been crawling all over litigation writing. So if you're in that field, you're mostly recycling familiar principles. Me, I had all sorts of topics that I could stick my teeth into. And second, uh, traditional contract language is just embarrassingly bad. And that makes it fun in a lugubrious sort of way. Everyone loves a train wreck. And third, businesses endlessly do the same kinds of transactions with minor variations. So it should be possible to make contract drafting efficient. That adds an extra opportunity and challenge the other kinds of legal writing don't offer to the same extent. And I think that was, that's important too.
0: That's interesting. And so when you say contract drafting or what you see is a train wreck, can you give me some specific examples?
2: Oh. When I refer to traditional contract drafting as being a train wreck, I mean that in two ways. First off, the building blocks of traditional contract drafting mean that contract prose creates confusion. The result is when you're drafting a contract, reviewing it, monitoring performance or negotiating, there's going to be delay and confusion. And if a company's templates reflect those shortcomings you're going to have that delay and confusion potentially spread throughout the entire system and wasting a lot of time a lot of money so that's a, just a systemic problem in addition it's a simple fact of life that occasionally confusion is going to be sufficiently great that someone is going to be unhappy about what they have as a result of the contract and if they're unhappy enough it's going to result in a fight so my book is full of hundreds of examples of people who unexpectedly found themselves fighting in court over some ostensibly minor drafting glitch that somehow metastasized into a full-blown dispute. As I said, there are plenty of examples of that. One, uh, Just one of many that comes to mind is the guarantee issued by Caesars Entertainment, the gambling company, in which it guaranteed the debts of the operating company, that is in litigation now because of an and that the company interpreted as meaning or and investors said actually that's an and. and so that's just one fight among many and fights like that waste time waste money
0: so that's interesting and it strikes me that both your complaint and your solution could be quantifiable. I'm curious if you have taken the time, or if anyone has taken the time, to do the math on what clearer contract drafting means for attorneys and clients.
2: Quantifying that is challenging because you'd have to have someone who systematically explores what their current costs are and then explores what the savings are. There's been a little bit of that done. I recall. Cisco Systems tried to quantify the costs of a traditional approach to confidentiality agreements and then the savings through automating, but it is challenging and it's nothing that I've had the opportunity to assess. In terms of risk, I think one's really limited to anecdotal evidence for that because it would require all sorts of research into the causes of litigation relating to contracts. And even then, the odds of a dispute occurring depend so much on the circumstances of the deal. I'm not sure that one could draw any grand general conclusions other than say things can get unpleasant, and, and they do often enough.
0: And we're going to take a break before we continue our conversation with Ken Adams. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24/7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800 Answer One or visit them at AnswerOne.com/podcast forward for a special offer. Welcome back. Now, Ken, you are the author of a manual of style for contract drafting, which is published by the ABA. And if I read your bio correctly, it took nearly 10 years from original inception to the publication of the first edition. One person I saw online referred to it as the Nerd Magnum Opus, which I believe is a compliment. I'm curious to know if when you started this project, if it was more of a personal compulsion to do it, or if you knew that there was an audience for this type of work.
2: Well, there probably was an element of compulsion involved. Uh, I really dislike inefficiency and disorder, but I'm entirely practical. So I've stuck with this subject because I thought I could make a difference.
0: And so now that you're in your fourth edition, I believe, of the book, how would you qualify that difference that the publication has made?
2: Well, perhaps it would make sense if I explained a little bit what the book tries to accomplish. It doesn't address what to say in a contract. I leave that to subject matter experts. Instead, it covers in depth how to say clearly and concisely whatever you want to say in a contract. So it covers the parts of a contract, how to use verb structures effectively, you know, for example, how to express obligations, the different kinds of ambiguity, and a bunch of other topics. Is it a nerd Magnum opus? Well, it it contains masses of detailed analysis. It has to, because contract disputes routinely involve fights over subtle nuances of terminology. Some parts are really intricate, and, and it's big. The fourth edition is around 600 pages. The fourth edition came out in October 2017, so it's the result of 20 years of incremental hacking away at the subject. And with the fourth edition, the work of devising guidelines for so the building blocks of contract language is mostly done. Now, I permit myself a pat on the back. You know, the book is a quantum leap over what came before, and there's nothing remotely like it. And it's been a, a grand publishing success for the ABA, as it sold tens of thousands of copies the world over which isn't bad for a nerd magnum opus. No, not at all. But back to your original question, in terms of the difference, I'm under no illusions that by itself, MSCD, which is how I refer to it, will usher in sweeping change. The forces of inertia are too powerful. But MSCD is available for those who want to do better. And the book is certainly being used. I hear that from my readers, uh, for example, just yesterday I heard about uh, got a message from someone at a large law firm who says that his department has given a copy to all junior associates, and every month they have a meeting to talk about a different drafting point. I think that's the kind of change that I'm hoping for—not so much uh, anything dramatic, sweeping, but just incremental change caused by people actually using the book and uh just uh, in an everyday sense
0: it's interesting that you talk about the book being a path to incremental change in this space because you've recently joined with legal sifter which is a artificial intelligence driven contract review startup out of pittsburgh which in my mind has the possibility to really scale your approach to contracts tell me a little bit about what you're doing for them
2: i'm serving as an advisor Now, here's how it plays out. If your side on a transaction isn't responsible for drafting the contract, you have to review the other side's draft. And that can be more time-consuming and challenging than creating a draft from one of your templates. So legal sifters building artificial intelligence contract review software. You upload a draft contract to to LegalSifter, and the software quickly reviews it for a range of specified issues, tells you whether those issues are addressed in the draft or missing, and offers help text. It allows you to do your review faster and with greater confidence. Now, in terms of my role, you know, the phrase artificial intelligence suggests that the robots are here to save us, but the reality is rather different. A lot of old-fashioned hard work and expertise underlies what goes into the technology. So indeed, legal sifter is relying on me to build my expertise into the software.
0: And so it would sound like it's an opportunity for you to make your views on contracts normative through scalable software. Do you see it that way? And if so, how do you feel about it?
2: Well, that's exactly what I want. If my guidelines are to become the norm, I have to make them available in every niche of the contract ecosystem. In Legal Sifter, for when you want to review the other side's drafts, I ultimately like, would like to build a set of automated, annotated templates for when you create your own draft. And I'd also like to create a rigorous contract drafting course offered to law schools around the world so students know that there's an alternative to running a copy-and-paste factory. I'd like to have a certification program so organizations know that their personnel are informed consumers of contract language. I'd like to create a concise style guide for organizations, you know, one, one that's shorter than 600 pages, so everyone at a company or law firm knows what contract usages are acceptable. So just as a practical matter, I've been hacking away a contract language for 20 years, but the reality is that my work is only just beginning, and, uh, and my work with Legal Sifter is, is one tangible expression of that.
0: Well, it sounds like you have no shortage of projects in the upcoming future. And I hope that we have the opportunity to speak again once your views have been integrated into Legal Sifter and some of these other projects have gotten off the ground. Ken Adams, it's been great talking with you today. Before we go, though, I want to give you an opportunity to share how our audience can get in contact with you.
2: You can find out about my research and writing and uh, about a manual style for contract drafting at adamsdrafting.com. There's also AdamsContracts.com, where you can find out about my consulting work. And LegalSifter.com is where you can find out about LegalSifter and my work with them.
0: Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. And for the ABA Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast, I'm Jason Taché.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents,